Well, Christ Central, we've been going through the book of James. And now today we come to James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Please follow along with me if you can. And the title of this message is the very question that James poses in this passage. So let's give our attention to this, starting in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is God's word for us today. Thanks be to God. All James has been oh so practical. He has been asking the question over and over again in different angles. If you have real saving faith in Jesus Christ, what difference does it make? If you have real saving faith in Jesus Christ, does it show up? Does it change lives? And James has been practical and specific about the differences and the changes that real saving faith in Jesus Christ brings. Now, in our passage, the practical man, the practical author, drops the philosophical. What is your life? What is your life? This is perhaps the most important question, the perennial question, that if you have never really asked of yourself, or you have not bothered to answer before, I ask you to consider, is there a better time than now? A modern-day philosopher, Mike Tyson, he once said, everyone has a worldview until you get punched in the mouth. <laughs> Everybody has a worldview until we get punched in the mouth. And I do know, along with the pastors, who pray for you by name, who pray for you regularly. We want to carry your burdens. All those who welcome and want to share your prayer requests, we promise to pray for you by name. I know that right now in this season, as we pray for many of you, some of you feel like you, you got punched. Like you physically, literally feel like you got punched in the gut. Like punched in your heart. Your business is getting punched. Uh, future prospects for your business is getting punched. Um, the state of your home or families or relationships right now is taking such a radical, unexpected turn. Maybe you're just exhausted trying to catch up and transition to this. Some of you are numb or bored or at least restless, but I'm sure all of us feel in this climate some kind of, this is not right. Something's off. None of us could have predicted that this would happen. Well, God seems to have it that for today, in this passage, for this time, He asks us to consider what is your life? What is your life? What is it for? What do you believe about it? And I want to certainly tell you from the outset, whatever you believe about your life, whatever you believe life is, we're always going to live it out. Just to guide us through, I'm just going to contrast two ways to live. I'm going to contrast 
two different ways to live. The first is in verse 13. We will go into such and such a town, travel there, trade there, make a profit. That's the first way of life. It's characterized in verse 13. The second way of life is in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. So, this is a war of wills, a combat of wills. The first way of life is my will governs, my will determines, my will dictates where I go, what I do, and how I do it. Verse 15 is a second way of life where it's no longer my will, but the Lord's will. It's not my way, but His way. Let's look at the first way of life first. Look at verse 13 once again. Read it. Look at it. Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Consider with me, is there anything unusual, abnormal about that? No, of course not. It sounds perfectly natural. This is a pervasive, easy, normal way of life. I mean, who hasn't planned and thought ahead and been excited about a promising future and say, I'm going to travel there and accomplish this and there's going to be a great return for it. But I want to suggest to you, this is one of the things about the first way of life. It's so natural, it's so easy, it goes unnoticed. You see, the first way of life is asymptomatic. That's the first characteristic. The first way of life is unquestioned. Uh, you can commit and continue to live the first way of life uh, by just simply not doing anything about it. Uh, you and I just commit to the first way of life by exerting no energy at all to do anything different from it. You just go with the flow. And when you travel and you trade and you go through life doing business, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but... What James is bringing out is that in some, the first way of life is life without God. The first way of life in verse 13 is God is missing. God is not there. It's life without God. See, the last living creature that could tell you about water would be fish. Don't think fish could imagine or explain or Describe to itself anything beyond its immediate and uh, total environment. Uh, water is all that fish has ever known. Uh, likewise, you and I can never really understand what life is supposed to be about. Were it not for our Creator, if we have been created, coming and showing and exposing and telling us, this is what your life is supposed to be about. And the press is a little bit further. It is only God who can come in and burst our little bubbles, burst our little lives, and show us our utter godlessness. It actually takes and requires God to show us that we live godless lives. So my friends, God is not against doing business, strategic planning, financial forecasting, setting goals, being disciplined about it, realizing and meeting deadlines, 
the fulfillment that you get from an accomplishment or a work or a project well done. God is not against planning, preparing, traveling, studying, progressing, or doing business in life. But here's what James teaches. God is, however, dead set against our arrogance in life. God is against human arrogance. This has been a repeated warning right here in James chapter 4. Look at verse 6 before our passage. It reads, But he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And then we get to our passage once again, in which James, in questioning us about what is your life, he is asking us to consider the first way of life. It's not only asymptomatic, but it is full of arrogance. And God is against our arrogance. Arrogance is the assumption that tomorrow will turn out a certain way, tomorrow will turn out just fine, because I can outsmart it, outwork it, outthink it, outplan it, maybe an outspend it for anything and everything that could ever go wrong. Arrogance is uh, it's delusional, it's, it's, it's deceptive. Uh, it makes people think that because I did this much work and I'm this competent, I can dictate the outcome of tomorrow. Uh, arrogance is also futile. It's futile in the face of realities. And you might have heard facts don't have feelings. It's a brutal truth. You and I have all kinds of mixture and conflicts of feelings, but facts don't have feelings. Realities don't bend and accommodate according to our reactions to it. This is why James says, what is your life? He answers it. It's a mist. It's a mist. And it appears for a little while, then it vanishes. It's that fleeting. It's fragile. It's so short. It just comes and goes. Arrogance is delusional. Arrogance is deceptive. Arrogance is futile. Last but not least, arrogance is fatal. It's fatal in this life and it's fatal in preparing you or not preparing you at all for death. See, in arrogance, you're never going to prepare ahead. In arrogance, you're not going to think life through until it's too late. Uh, Gladstone, when he was the Prime Minister of Great Britain, he met the son of a close friend. And that young man had asked for an appointment to meet with Gladstone to share about the plans he had for his life. And the young man began by saying, Sir, I plan to go to Oxford and to read political science. Splendid, said Gladstone. And what then? The young man came back around and said, Well, sir, then I plan to become a barrister to practice law. Gladstone asked, And what then? Well, sir, then I plan to become one day uh, might, might stand for election to, to Parliament and serve my country, even as you have done. Noble and tremendous, said Gladstone. And what then? Well, I suppose that eventually I will retire and enjoy life. Good thinking, said Gladstone. And what then? A bit befuddled, the young man said, 
Well, sir, I suppose in time I'll die. That's true, said Gladstone. And what then? I don't know, sir. I've never thought it through that far. Young man, said Gladstone, you are a fool. Go home and think through your life from the end. Gladstone told the son of a young, uh, of a close friend, you are a fool if you have not thought through your life from the end. You know, I know it's more comfortable and maybe trendy for people today. So I'll, you know, don't want to think about the future too much. I don't live for the present. I live for the now. And don't believe in God. I don't want to really ever consider if there's a God or not. But my personal worldview is if we could all rid ourselves of a belief in God, I think maybe we'd all be better off. I'm not so sure that's the case. If you really take a good listen, if you take a good look at people around us and people just like me and you, you know, anger, I'm sorry, anxiety, anxiety and fear. Anxiety and fear come from imagining a future without God in it. Anger flares up and it rages when you feel like you have to make it right because somebody never ever will make it completely right. Panic comes from the belief that life is ultimately really all up to me. All of life is up to me. And then when you get to the point where you no longer believe that you can handle life being all up to you, that's when panic sets in. You know, at least if you're religious, and religious cultures ancient and currently on the rise today, religion has not died, God is not dead. But if you grew up religious, at least you were told and taught what life is supposed to be about. Life is about something greater than yourself. The meaning and the purpose of life has to do with you got to stake it upon something outside of this world. Now, if you're not religious and you don't believe in any gods and you're just a, uh, no, I'm sorry, not just, but you, you, you're, you're a secularist, you you're uh, believe that everything is natural. Well, uh, then you do have the tremendous freedom and options to go and figure out what is the meaning of your life. You get to choose. You get to define your own life. But whatever you define your life upon, you see, whatever you build your life upon is always going to be something in this world. It has to be. Uh, like finding perfect love or success, you know, glory, fame, the highest pleasures. If you don't, if you don't believe in any gods, your life is going to have to come down to something in this world. But you see, once something in this world or everything in this world is corrupted or ruined or lost, so is your life. So is your life. And that is called despair. James teaches that the first way of life is asymptomatic. It goes unnoticed. It's unquestioned. We just do it naturally and easily. You don't have to exert any energy against it. I mean, you, 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 you just don't have to exert any energy at all. And you're just going to continue to do it. 
and it's full of arrogance. Jane says, this arrogance, this boasting is evil. It's evil of all the word choices he could have used. Now, so far, we've only been entertaining this from the perspective of the consequences to us or how it might affect us or, again, namely, how it makes me feel if I go in this first way of life, a life without God. But maybe a much more important question we ought to ask is, what does this do to God? How does it make God feel if there is a God? Immortal, invisible, the only wise, sovereign maker of all. What is this way of life? What does this look like from God's point of view? Have you ever wondered that? What does this feel like from God's own point of view? Where we might relegate him to about 45 minutes or one hour each week on a Sunday, but the rest of the week and the entirety and the rest of our lives is is spent as we are our own gods, our own kings of the universe. (laughs) There's an old rap song by Dr. Dre and a young Eminem that's uh, entitled, You Forgot About Dre. (laughs) You Forgot About Dre. And, uh, you know, obviously I can't repeat any of the lyrics to you. Uh, Not in this forum. Um, You can maybe go listen to it. It's quite a catchy tune. But I'll tell you this, um, it's angry. Um, It's certainly very angry. It sounds angry. And it's actually justifiably angry. You see, when you get forgotten, when you get, when you get dismissed, okay, people think less of you than they should. Uh, people marginalize you. Right? People just ignore you, forget all about you. How do you feel? And Apostle Paul teaches in Romans chapter 1 that all human beings created living creatures by God We are actively forgetting about God. We are actively suppressing. We are raging and rebelling. Like we're holding it down. You know what you're trying to hold down? You know what you're trying to forget? The knowledge and the existence of God. And for that, Romans 1 does warn that a pure and holy and unadulterated and perfect wrath is to come. But let's thank God that James does not end with just the first way of life as our only option. He points to a second way of life. A second way of life. A whole new and better way of life. It's there in verse 15. Verse 15 once again. Instead, you and I ought to say, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, we will go do this and that. There is no better and greater example of the man who lived the second way of life perfectly than Jesus Christ, who was fully human, but also claimed to be the Son of God, and I believe, without any doubt, demonstrated to be the actual Son of God. And one day in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was agonizing, he was wailing, he was wrestling, between his natural human will for self-preservation, 
We do not want to suffer. We do not want to go through pain. We do not want to die. We do not want to bleed. And he was wrestling with his natural human desire for self-preservation, his own will versus his father's will in heaven. And he wrestled with this, my will or his will, my will and his will. He prayed three times, begging God, his father, if there be any other way, if there be any other way but your way, if there be any other will or desire but your will, God, please let me find it. Let me do anything else but this. But Jesus, the son, ultimately submitted himself. He trusted and followed the father's will more than his own. And he went all the way to a cross. He got crucified in history. He laid himself down, only to be raised in power, in perfection, and glory for eternal praise. What an example. Jesus is exemplary, to be sure. The greatest of them all. That by laying down your life, choosing self-surrender, not self-preservation, where in essence, Jesus cut himself off. He got cut off. He was distanced. He was quarantined. He was abandoned and rejected by his own father. He was forsaken by his own father. By doing that, he was able to bring a second and new and better life for all those who ever come to him and believe in him. And even for himself, out of death, out of humiliation, came eternal glory and perfection. That's an example to be sure. But Jesus didn't come just to be, be, uh, be exemplary. He came to offer himself existentially. You see, the second way of life is only possible when you get it from Jesus because he gave himself and he gives you the very best existentially. Here's what this means. Here's what this actually means. You see, when Jesus Christ was forgotten once and for all, because he took upon our rebellion and our sin, our God-independent lives, when he was forsaken at the cross, it means that you and I, all those who come to Jesus, you can never, ever, ever be forgotten or forsaken. Not even for a second. Not at home when you're alone. Not even in a hospital bed. For days and nights on end. You are never really left alone, even when visitors cannot come by. Because Jesus was forgotten, forsaken, you and I can always be remembered. You and I can always be beloved. We are beloved. We are noticed. We are seen. We are heard. We enter into an unbreakable, irreversible union of love with God in heaven who gave up his own son so that he would never give you up. Ever. And this second way of life is the way of life which begins by saying, if the Lord wills, because Jesus did that and gave up himself for us, we can walk in his footsteps, become more like him, but receive a whole new life in him as well. You know, for those of you, thank you again for joining me on Thursday night. We experimented with Instagram Live. I hope 
that brought any kind of happiness to you, and I did enjoy it. I think this week we're going to switch it to a Wednesday night, but I was able to share with you, I read the story of Francis Collins, who's the director of the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, found this in the article uh, by The Atlantic. And Francis Collins, you might know him uh, through uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci. You might see him all over the news channels, the infectious disease specialist. And uh, he comes out right away. He seems to be credible and competent and trustworthy as a voice. I think we should do well paying attention to him and listening and following his orders. Well, Francis Collins, the director of the NIH, um, is Anthony Fauci's boss. And I came across this article that was just so, uh, so fascinating to me about how Francis Collins himself, as a young man, came to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, his religious exposure happened to do, only had to, had to do with uh, trying to learn music at the local Episcopalian church. And his dad had strictly forbade him of learning anything else about the religion but that, which uh, Francis obeyed. He went off to college, went off to graduate school, uh, called himself a hardcore atheist who would mock and make fun of anyone with a religious worldview. He would tell them, the era of supernaturalism has long come and gone. Well, uh, as a third-year medical student, no longer learning about the human anatomy from, uh, from lecture halls, uh, but having to sit bedside uh, with patients who were suffering from terrible diseases, Francis said of himself that he was always troubled and terrified by end-of-life matters. Uh, there was one particular patient that reminded Francis of his own grandmother, and so um, he became attached to her. And uh, this grandmother, uh, this, this patient reminded of his grandmother, uh, was suffering from an advanced cardiac disease. <coughs> and according to Francis, she uh, uh, invariably must have been suffering from almost daily crushing chest pain. And she was, on a, on a regular basis, uh, talking to Francis and going through this whole ordeal with remarkable peace. Remarkable peace. That got the attention of Francis. And at one point, she looked up at him in a quizzical way and said this, you've listened to me talk about my faith all along, but you never say anything about yourself. What is it that you believe? It was just a very direct, simple question, but it was like a thunderclap. And it was like a realization that Francis could not walk away from. He could not shake it. And it was the most important question that he had ever been asked. What is it that you believe? What is your life? Well, after that patient passed, met with the pastor who introduced Francis to the works of C.S. Lewis, and he began with mere Christianity. He says in the opening pages, he realized right away that all his objections were the objections of a mere schoolboy, that all of his reasons and objections of the past against the Christian faith were utterly simplistic. And in those opening pages, he found himself utterly disarmed, also upset, but as he read through mere Christianity at the age of 27, he came to the answer that he'd always been looking for, he put his faith in Jesus Christ. He became a Christian. And Francis describes that this not only changed his relationship with God, 
but it changes relationships with other people, and it also changes relationships with himself. And he, right here, we're going to share this quote with you. Quote, The notion, therefore, that it is okay to put yourself in the driver's seat in every way, regardless of what effect that has on others, it's simply indefensible. Did you hear that? One of the first and greatest and immediate effects that Jesus Christ had upon the life of Francis Collins was, was he no longer felt like he had to be in the driver's seat. Tremendous relief. Remarkable peace started to sweep in. The kind of peace that he saw in that patient. And he said all his life he had been hard driving, very ambitious. It was a very hard-nosed, selfish approach. And even with that, Jesus made it into a more loving and forgiving approach. Do you know anything about this, my friends? Are you just going through life like the first way of life in verse 13? Or do you know anything about if the Lord wills a second and better way of life that Jesus, only Jesus can bring? When family and friends and neighbors get to sense a peace and a poise, a love and a forgiveness, not just a selfish hardness and ambition. When they get the sense that you're relieved of no longer having to control everything and drive everything, it is like a thunderclap from heaven. So what is your life? Have you asked this? Have you really thought it through from the end? What do you really believe about life? So how should you live it? Verse 15. If the Lord wills. The Latin phrase for that is Deo volente. God willing or Lord willing. So as James teaching us today, the way that you should live, the second way to live is go around speaking Latin. You got to learn Latin if you're truly spiritual or uh, you got to speak or sound Christianese. No, not at all. That is not what James is teaching. Please follow me in this. You know, there's a lot of people who, who are churched and who, who seemingly uh, are very spiritual and they'll say stuff like, you know, Pastor, I, I prayed about this. Do you know how long I prayed about this? I prayed long and hard about this and I'm convinced that this is what God wants me to do now. And if you do that, you see, I want you to notice that you can still be trying to play God. You can still be dismissing God. You can still be trying to take over the role of God, even while mentioning and saying God. Because if you don't open yourself up to be ever questioned or challenged or contradicted, you're acting as if you yourself are God. And it might be your will that you're carrying out more than really living out what is the Lord's will. So what does this mean to live out? Deo volente. If the Lord wills. I think this is what it means. It means that all of life, all of life is God dependent. Verse 15 is introducing us into a whole new attitude, a whole new posture, a whole new spirit of life. Every day you get up, every day you get up, it should no longer be, I will, I can dictate tomorrow, I'm certain of this, I've got this all under control. No, 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 you're not in the driver's seat anymore. 
because Jesus gave himself up for you. You're no longer the driver's seat. Jesus is there. And if that is true, then every day you and I get to live is God-dependent. And you know what that is? Grace is God-dependency. All of this is grace. It's all grace. God-dependency. Look, tomorrow you and I get to wake up and live another day, albeit even in this uncertain, troubled time. Tomorrow, that day, is way better than what I really deserve. It is all God-dependent that my heart still beats, that I can still think and speak, that I can still enjoy all the lavish, wonderful gifts that God has given to me as my Father. It's all grace. You know what grace does? Grace always dissolves pride. Grace is an arrogant, boastful killer. It's kryptonite to pride. And if you're feeling depressed, despairing, or panicking, or you're crushed, grace will always pull you up. Because all of life is not under your control. And for many of you who've just been kind of coasting through life, life has always been somewhat predictable, comfortable, manageable. In essence, you never feel like you had to pray. I'm talking to you, brothers and sisters, who've been coasting through life where you never really felt dependency and a need and an ache for God. Can I suggest something to you? You might have not really grasped grace yet because grace will shake you out of complacency. Grace will scare you out of complacency because grace tells you, you can't dare presume on God about tomorrow. How then should we live? What is your life? Lord willing. God willing. You give me another day, God, I'll live it in gratitude to you because of your grace. So you see, verse 17 is a fitting conclusion. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Verse 17 is the fitting conclusion to the second way of life. If all of life is God-dependent, if all of life is about His grace, then you have a new urgency to do that which is good. Go do it now. Go do it this afternoon. You got to do it tonight. You see, the first way of life presumes and assumes, oh, I got tomorrow. I can delay. I'm in control. I'll dictate the times and the terms of my obedience. Now, that's, you're still in the first way of life. Second way of life, if you really know the Lord wills, every day is a gift. Do what is right and what is good now. Do it now. My friends, can I pray for us in response to God's word? Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the spirit of Jesus. And I pray, oh God, for your powerful, loving, sovereign movement. Even through technology right now, touching each heart. That we would get out of the driver's seat. We would let go of all controls. And we would trust and submit and follow the Lord. The Lord who gave up his own son so that I might have new and eternal and whole life. Oh God, hear us. Teach us, especially in this season, to do that which is good, to do it urgently, to do it genuinely, to do it without hesitation or delay. 
Father, may we do it with the compassion and love that you poured out in Christ for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.